Before we begin, a content warning and a note about language and pronoun use. There are descriptions of violence contained in this episode. We'll also be discussing problematic language used to label people who are trans or trans-adjacent, both by law enforcement and in the media. Finally, to the best of our knowledge, we have used the victim's correct pronouns. This is The Fall Line. I don't think they really took that case, his case, really. They didn't take it serious at all because he used to walk around. He didn't bother nobody. Everybody got their faults of doing stuff, but he didn't bother nobody. If he wanted to be gay, that was him. If he wanted to dress like he wanted him, that was him. People would throw rocks at him when he walked. He would come tell me, and I would always go, and I would let them know, you know, I'm the feisty one. Look, don't throw rocks at him. You want to throw rocks at him, throw rocks at him. Now I'm here, you know. In 1999, The Advocate published an article reporting that California Governor Gray Davis had signed a historical bill, quote, banning harassment of the state's teachers and students on grounds of sexual orientation or gender identity. It was also the year that, as PBS notes, quote, the American Counseling Association adopted a position opposing reparative therapy as a cure for individuals who are homosexual. 1999 marks the first annual Trans Day of Remembrance in the United States. The event was established in reaction to the 1998 murder of Rita Hester and serves to memorialize those who have died due to anti-trans prejudice, hate, and violence. Many of these crimes go unsolved. And as the official website notes, Rita Hester's case remains open to this day. During the late 1990s and in the Southeast, there were cities with an evident and visible gay and lesbian presence. Atlanta, Miami, Orlando, New Orleans. But the transgender activists who had participated and often led the fight for gay rights, they were missing from discussions of everything, from the landmark Stonewall riots to the AIDS crisis. And violence targeting the trans community was virtually undiscussed until the film that came out in 1999, Boys Don't Cry, a drama based on the life and death of Brandon Tina, who was raped and murdered in rural Nebraska in 1993. Brandon was played by Hilary Swank, who won an Oscar and a Golden Globe for the role. She was the first person, cis or trans, to play a trans man in a mainstream film. And that same year, down in Georgia, three trans women were murdered. Sissy Bolden and Billie Jean Levette, both from Savannah, were likely killed by Ross Lane Emerson, a sex offender and suspected serial killer. He was accused of at least two other murders in Florida and he hanged himself in his Texas jail cell two days before his first trial. Even with the stir surrounding Boys Don't Cry, these murders did not garner nationwide attention. To read about them now, you need an archival subscription and the help of the Wayback Machine. The third murder occurred near Cordial, Georgia, a town about three hours away from Savannah. Ross Lame Emerson, suspected of killing Sissy and Billie Jean, wasn't in Georgia in March of 1999. 
He was sitting in a Texas prison awaiting his August parole date. He could not have murdered a woman named Tracy Thompson. But someone else did. Maybe someone local, maybe not. Few heard about the case. She was a minor note in the news coverage of the time, not the right kind of victim. In March of 1999, Tracy Thompson was 32 years old. She had no fixed address. She was originally from Dalton, Georgia, a town about 70 miles north of Atlanta, but she didn't stay there long. She spent her adult life traveling up and down I-75 and I-85. She balanced between North Georgia, South Georgia, and Florida. And the truck stops along the way served as her home bases. She was known to hitchhike. Based on her presence at truck stops, there's a possibility that Tracy engaged in sex work, though no sources confirm this. We didn't find a single friend quoted at the time of her death, and law enforcement at the time said there was no one to interview. Tracy was small, with sandy blonde hair and a slight build. She was close to gaunt, which accentuated her sharp cheekbones and her deep-set eyes. She may have been traveling with a boyfriend, or she could have caught a ride with someone else entirely. Her exact reasons for being in Cordial are unknown. Perhaps she was on the way back down to Florida. She had an uncle there. Since Tracy often traveled with truckers, she spent time along major highways and near gas stations, motels, and the fast food restaurants that make up interstate landscapes. She would have spent most of her time near people, if not with them. But near people is not where she ended up. In the early morning of March 30th, 1999, she was in the middle of nowhere. A country road of packed dirt, so rural that there weren't even houses or businesses in sight. That's where, sometime around 3 a.m., she was beaten nearly to death and left to die. Tracy and her killer were isolated in a wooded area halfway between Cordial and Seaville, Georgia. As the AJC reported, he used a bat to attack her, and the impact with Tracy's body left it splintered. A hunk lay on the wooded road. A state trooper would later find the bat's handle marked with blood in a ditch about a mile away. After the attack, Tracy was critically injured, but she managed to walk nearly a mile to find help. She came upon the home of Cindy and Joel Brown and told them that her boyfriend had attacked her. The Browns called local police to report a badly hurt woman at their front door, and within the hour, Tracy was taken to a nearby hospital. Police interviewed her there, where she repeated her story. Her boyfriend had tried to kill her. And she named her attacker, but was unable to provide more detail. And no family or friends were present at the time of her death. And then two years later, 2001, the Transgender Foundation of America was formed. In three U.S. states, bans on sexual orientation discrimination went on the books. Director Steven Spielberg stepped down as a member of the Boy Scouts of America Advisory Board in direct response to the organization's discrimination in regard to sexual orientation. In New Mexico, there was the case of Navajo teenager Fred Martinez, identified in the media as an openly gay male. Family and friends have actually described him as two-spirit. Martinez was murdered by an 18-year-old named Sean Murphy, who lived in the same small town. The Rocky Mountain News reported that Murphy beat Martinez to death with a boulder. He was caught when he bragged about the crime. Just two months later, Gary Raynal, an openly gay man from Kansas City, was sexually tortured and then murdered in a horrifically violent attack. 
His friends and family felt that it was a bias-based crime. And yet, the Kansas Pitch reported that, quote, a spokesperson for the Leewood Police Department quickly dismissed the hate crime theory. He likely knew his killer, they believed, and was not a victim of random violence. At the time of the article's 2001 publication, the victim's sister was trying to get his case covered on America's Most Wanted. But his murder remains unsolved today, and we found no further news coverage. And then, again, back down to Georgia. January of 2001 in another small town. This time it was Ashburn, just about one county over from Cordell. The drive between the two cities is about 20 minutes, give or take. Robert Martin was 32 and a native of Ashburn. His family had deep roots there. Robert walked nearly everywhere he had to go. Between that habit and his membership in an established Ashburn family, Robert was known by most in town. January 11th, 2001 was like many other nights. In the early morning hours, he left the local nightclub and walked toward his house. It was a route he took several times a week. His path, as always, involved a well-used shortcut through an abandoned school. But on that night, Robert didn't make it home. He was found by a man who'd been out walking his dog. Robert had been savagely beaten and left unconscious in a breezeway. And he remained in a coma for six weeks, eventually dying of his injuries. He never had a chance to tell his family who'd hurt him. On the surface, Tracy and Robert lived different lives. Tracy, a white woman from North Georgia, lived with the media called a transient lifestyle. She came from a military family and was the oldest child. We can't identify her friends or romantic partners, and location specifics are hard to track. It's easier to figure out where she traveled based on her arrest record than on any story shared by loved ones. And Robert was a black man who was described as having had cognitive disabilities. He lived with his mother, Geraldine, and his brother, Reginald, and Robert helped care for his nonverbal brother, who also had cognitive disabilities, and who relied on Robert for companionship. Robert mostly socialized with family, though he had a few friends who'd travel further out of town. Not that any big city was truly close to Ashburn. Robert didn't go, though. He preferred to stay home, where he could chat with neighbors and talk to everyone on the street. In fact, he talked to just about anyone about anything. And his cousin Shirley thinks that inclination could have led to his death. What Tracy and Robert had in common is evident when one reviews media reports about their cases. Journalists and law enforcement have struggled to describe both victims, and the word, quote, transvestite has appeared more than any other term. Quote, man in women's clothes and, quote, crossdresser were other common descriptors. In both cases, the pronoun he and the designation man were used, though they were only appropriate for Robert. The descriptions of what Tracy and Robert were wearing, or may have been wearing, often get more column space than the actual crimes. In Tracy's case, homophobic and transphobic descriptions are used in both news articles and in television coverage. Only more recent pieces, including the excellent article by the Atlanta Journal-Constitution's reporter, Nancy Battersher, properly identify and describe Tracy. In 1999, the reporting provides a snapshot of some of the local reactions to the murder. For instance, at the time of Tracy's death, 
A Cordial resident named Fred King told the Associated Press, quote, They say he was wearing a dress. Most people in this area would say hell. He needed killing. Whatever was reported or recorded, Tracy Thompson was a trans woman. She was Tracy in life and death, no matter the name she was buried under. Robert's case is a little different. To the best of our knowledge, Robert did not identify as transgender, though news reports described him in the same language they used in Tracy's story. According to his cousin Shirley, Robert was a self-described gay man who used male pronouns. Shirley says that among friends and family, he always went by Robert. And perhaps Robert would have identified differently in 2019, but we cannot make that assumption for him. Shirley, accepting, loving, and one of his closest friends provides the best answers we have. But how he was perceived had the most immediate effect on his life. Based on what we've gathered, it was most likely that interplay of homophobia and transphobia that caused his death. Shirley told us that Robert was somewhat gender nonconforming in his dress, often choosing to wear more feminine shorts and belts with more masculine shoes and shirts. He owned a wig, which his cousin said was long and black. Whether he wore it depended completely on his mood. Unfortunately, Robert's case has completely faded from the public consciousness. Two people beaten to death in towns 20 minutes away from each other, less than two years apart. Only one news story from 2001 mentions both cases, and then only to note the surface similarities. If public knowledge of Tracy's story has fared a bit better than Robert's, it's largely due to the efforts of a 1999 Advocate article, several Trans Day of Remembrance websites, and a handful of reporters who've continued to cover the case. In addition to the AJC, another excellent bit of coverage came from Daily Beast reporters, who included Tracy's story and their recent coverage of the 1998 death of Rita Hester, a case they described as starting a movement. Author Samantha Allen quoted the advocates Lisa Meyer, who wrote in 1999 that, quote, major newspapers and networks across the nation are still reporting what happened to Matthew Shepard. Thompson did not even make the Atlanta papers. In early 1999, former Georgia Governor Roy Barnes signed legislation supporting stiffer penalties when a violent act could be proven to be a hate crime. But in the cases of Tracy and Robert, Media noted that neither attack was being specifically investigated as such. At the turn of the 21st century, there were the beginnings of a mainstream public stirring against homophobic hate crimes, but attention toward violence against transgender persons was still a long time away. And considering the current statistics on attacks and murders of trans and non-binary people, one might argue that time still hasn't come. There were at least 55 murders of transgender persons from 2017 to 2018. And in 2018, the Human Rights Coalition found that of the 22 known victims in that year, 82% were women of color, and 55% of the victims lived in the South. The coalition also reported that of the 22 murders of transgender persons they recorded in 2018, 74% of the victims were misgendered in news reports and media coverage. They've actually released a guide to educate reporters and hopefully improve that use of language, pronouns, and descriptors. As the coalition pointed out, language is important. Affirming another person's selfhood also affirms their humanity. But Tracy's story, what we know of it at least, 
began and ended before those topics of pronouns and self-definition truly entered public discourse. Her family has not responded to requests for interviews, so we cannot say for certain when they became aware of Tracy's gender identity or whether she legally sought gender confirmation on her birth certificate or via official name change. When she began to use the last name Thompson is also not clear, though it does appear on a number of her arrest records. The AJC reported that she'd been arrested at least 20 times for nonviolent offenses like shoplifting, theft by taking, public drunkenness. At her arrest, she was variously listed under the names Tracy Thompson, Tracy Turner, and Billy Joe Turner. After her murder, Tracy was laid to rest in Dalton, Georgia, in a family plot. Her tombstone bears her birth name, Billy Joe. We've searched Dalton for signs of Tracy, but we've come up short. When tracing back the threads of a person's life, some of the best mile markers are schools. They produce so much paperwork, yearbooks, records that can show who was where and when. So we went through every available Dalton yearbook. We combed through some in other states, too, because it became clear that after their parents' divorce, Tracy's sister Tammy moved to Tennessee. Maybe Tracy had joined her. And we know at some point that Tammy moved back to Dalton, where she had at least one child. And we know that Tammy lived there until she died in 1992, at age 25. But there was no sign of Tracy. We checked in Facebook class reunion groups, on classmates.com, on message boards, and with the organizers of alumni gatherings. No one remembered her, as Tracy or under her birth name. We actually had better luck with Robert Martin, who hadn't attended the local high school at all. But then his town of Ashburn was much smaller than Dalton. And in terms of Dalton's social record, Tracy was invisible. Maybe Tracy went to private school or attended a program that didn't issue yearbooks. Maybe she dropped out or left early or got her GED. But without those school paper trails, we could not find her childhood friends. The only photo we have of Tracy is a mugshot. We've seen one other, briefly, on a single news report. Beyond the charges we've mentioned, there's been discussion of drunk driving and an actual prison stint for theft. Then there are some things that are just hinted at. Again, based on her continued presence at truck stops, there's the possibility that Tracy may have intermittently or regularly engaged in sex work. A 1999 Augusta Chronicle article specifically describes her as, quote, hanging around truck stops dressed like a woman. The same article refers to her, quote, lifestyle. To talk about victimology, we need to examine the various issues that would have affected her as a poor, housing-insecure trans woman in the 1990s. The possibility of sex work would further add to that equation. And maybe that wasn't Tracy's situation, but it was and is a reality for many others. Our culture's unwillingness to protect sex workers has a direct effect on the rates of abuse and murder they experience. The intersection of sex work and trans identity was the focus of a groundbreaking 2015 report called Meaningful Work, Trans Experience in the Sex Trade, and it was authored by members of the Best Practice Policy Project, the National Center for Transgender Equality, and the Red Umbrella Project. The study, which began in 2008, included, at the time, the largest survey ever conducted of transgender individuals, about 6,400 people. Of those surveyed, quote, 
10.8% of the overall survey reported having participated in sex work. Now, that's in comparison to an estimated 0.3 to 0.6 of the total U.S. population. The Meaningful Work report offers information that may inform our understanding of the higher rates of trans sex workers. Education, employment, housing, all factored into a participant's likelihood of working in the sex industry. In comparison to trans respondents who did not engage in sex work, trans sex workers were more likely to have left school due to harassment. They were also more likely to have had trouble finding and keeping employment and reported much higher rates of being denied housing at shelters and harassment by shelter staff. Interactions with law enforcement and the correction system are also covered in the survey. Considering Tracy Thompson's arrests, anywhere from 20 to 50, depending on the source, these figures are worth mentioning here. Meaningful Work reports that 79% of transgender sex workers reported high levels of interaction with the police and, quote, also indicated that they were somewhat uncomfortable, 26%, or very uncomfortable, 31%, seeking help from the police. Further, of the trans sex workers who had been incarcerated, quote, 29.6% were subject to physical assault by other inmates and 13.5% by officers or staff. It's not just sex workers who experience additional risks while incarcerated. Trans women of all walks of life may face placement in male facilities, where they are particularly vulnerable to abuse. Since the late 1980s, a number of lawsuits have been brought to prevent trans feminine prisoners' placements in male institutions. Most have been unsuccessful. Even in 2019, 16 years after the Prison Rape Elimination Act was signed into law, the protocol for placement is still inconsistent. In the 80s and 90s, when Tracy was arrested and sometimes sentenced, there was no Prison Rape Elimination Act, no federal protection for transgender inmates. Solutions to jail and prison assault were limited mostly to protective custody and segregation. Several studies from that era note a trend of placing trans-feminine detainees and prisoners in lockdown units designed for extremely violent inmates. These units, at least in one report concerning California, quote, had much worse conditions than other parts of the jail. And even when she wasn't incarcerated, Tracy would have faced many challenges, homelessness, food insecurity, lack of medical care and insurance. To our knowledge, she did not have regular employment during the mid to late 1990s. Tracy may have had at least intermittent access to hormone therapy, but it's likely that consistent, monitored treatment would have been difficult for her to achieve. In the 1990s, trans people who could not obtain prescriptions for hormones had limited options. Ivana Black, a woman from New York who began her transition in the 90s, was interviewed by ABC News in 2016. She told reporters that she first used birth control pills and then arranged to buy estrogen, mostly in shot form, and androgen blockers from others in the community. Sometimes she used street dealers. The cost to get a diagnosis and access to legal hormones was just too high. Today, hormones may be purchased on the digital black market but not in 1999. There were a few online resources like early Yahoo message boards that offered advice on how one could combine hormones for transition. Most commonly, though, knowledge and hormones were delivered in person. And depending on region, some people would travel to Mexico to purchase their hormones. In a U.S. news report, Shandy Moore, an HIV educator, 
remembered her transition nearly three decades in the past. She's quoted as saying, quote, That was all we had to go down there, black market hormones. We didn't have anything else. Chandy Moore is from L.A., though. She lived in a completely different world than Tracy. Tracy's hometown, Dalton, is a mill town, known for its carpet industry, with a population that's hovered around 30,000 for the last 20 years. The poverty rate sits tight, too, at about 24%. Where Tracy would have picked up valuable information regarding transition, if she would have sought it out in Dalton at all, we can't be sure. There's not much coverage of Dalton's LGBTQ community, particularly in the late 1990s. Based on contemporary local message boards, it seems the closest gay bar is in Chattanooga, which is about a 30-minute drive. There could have been somewhere to go in the late 80s and 90s, but we couldn't find it. News archives bring up only a handful of articles discussing the LGBTQ citizens of Dalton, and mostly reports from the last few years. Stress, sleep, recovery, whether we're in the gym or at work, these things shape how we perform. One thing we've both added to our daily routine, and it's helped make a noticeable difference for us, is NuCalm. Brooke told me about her NuCalm experience this week. She's been using it while her baby naps, so for her, the 50-minute reboot session is perfect. It's a little time she can carve out of her day to relax, de-stress, and, well, reboot. By the time the baby's awake, Brooke feels refreshed and ready for the rest of her day, too. It's imperative to your health and happiness to be able to manage stress and not be managed by it. New Calm gives you the power and control to relax and recharge anywhere, anytime. Own the day with New Calm. NuCalm is the only stress management system of its kind, clinically proven in over 1 million sessions to improve your sleep, reduce your stress, and boost your recovery without drugs and side effects. The NuCalm system uses cutting-edge neuroscience and consists of three non-invasive and non-pharmaceutical items, all of which are included in your monthly subscription that costs less than a daily cup of coffee. The whole process is easy to use and to work into your daily routine to achieve better sleep, reduction in stress, and boost in recovery. Do what we did. Own the day with NuCalm. We have a special link set up specifically for our listeners. Go to fallnucalm.com and get 50% off your 30-day subscription of NuCalm and their money-back guarantee. That's fall, N-U-C. ALM.com. Fall, N-U-C-A-L-M.com. According to USA Today, Dalton is known for its churches as much as its carpet mills. In 2009, the churches numbered at over 100 for a population of around 30,000. The article also lists two major categories of historical sites in town— Civil War memorials and signs that mark points on the Trail of Tears. If you like the outdoors, then there's plenty to do in Dalton. Trails, bike paths, canyons. Newspaper articles from Tracy's teenage years highlight wholesome activities like church and football games. In social media groups dedicated to Dalton, there are a few posts discussing other fun that teenagers had in the late 70s and early 80s when Tracy would have been or should have been in high school. 
Mostly, it seems they cruised down Main Street with whoever had or could borrow a car. They'd swing by Bob's snack shack, gather their boyfriends, drop off their girlfriends. They drank and smoked and rode in the same circles their parents had. Was Tracy there? Did she ride in those cars drinking Boone's Farm out of a Crystal's fast food cup? And did she feel at home or alone? If she was there, we can't find anyone who remembers, or who was willing to admit remembering. As in the case of Elia Banderas, what we can tell you, for sure, is not nearly enough. We know that after Tracy's parents divorced, her father moved to Tennessee, where he remarried and had at least one other child. Tracy's mother stayed in Georgia and would be buried there, only a few years after her two children, in a small family plot. Tracy's father died in Tennessee. His obituary mentioned all of his children as well as his ex-wife. Two of Tracy's siblings, at least, are still living. We tracked down the son of Tammy Turner, the sister who died in 1992. He was kind enough to share what he knew, which wasn't a lot. He knew that he had a relative whom he knew as his, quote, uncle, who died in the late 1990s. His genealogical research was based on the same records we all use. Newspapers, death certificates, ancestry trees, find a grave. He couldn't tell us anything that put Tracy on that rural road between Seavale and Cordial, Georgia. Here's what we do know, though. That night, she wore jeans and a blouse printed with small flowers. Even for South Georgia, it was a warm March, around 71 at the height of the day. It was dipping below 60 when Tracy stumbled up to the door of Joel and Cindy Brown. She was likely in shock. Maybe that's why, as the AJC reported in 2017, the Browns were asked for water, a blanket, and a place to rest. Every 90s-era article on this case mentions two things. Some version of the statement that the Browns, quote, at first thought she was a woman, and that they called 911. In 1999, the Augusta Chronicle reported that Tracy was conscious and talking on the way to the hospital. She spoke to police and staff after she arrived, and this is backed up in more current news reports. Macon's Channel 41 News provided cold case coverage of Tracy's murder in 2015 and noted that it was the county's only unsolved homicide. They quoted GBI agent Steve Weathersby, who indicated that Tracy was interviewed by both GBI agents and local law enforcement and that she spoke to nurses. The repeated phrase in all reports is that Tracy said her boyfriend had attacked her and that she had named him. Weathersby indicated that Tracy, who'd been in and out of consciousness, died when her brain swelling couldn't be controlled. The original agent who spoke to the press in 1999 had at the time told the Augusta Chronicle that, quote, the motive could have been robbery, sex, or hate crime. We just don't know. Something that came up in numerous reports was how the investigators interpreted the word boyfriend. At least one news outlet referred to the attacker as an ex-boyfriend, and another reported that investigators were considering, quote, boyfriend as a possible replacement for another word. Did they mean customer, hookup, stranger? It was never spelled out. In 2015, News 41 reported that three men in Georgia, all truckers, had the same name Tracy had given investigators before she died. And in 2017, the AJC offered a very important detail. 
one of those men had indeed been identified as a former boyfriend. Authorities said he'd been out of town at the time of the murder. Similarly, the other two suspects were cleared, though law enforcement didn't elaborate as to how. There's a little bit more on suspects. Two separate sources, over a decade apart, say that a few tips came in to identify a suspect, someone with a grudge against the LGBTQ community. And as of 2015, that suspect had not been cleared. Badersher's article mentions a prisoner who, in 2017, was a person of interest in the crime. Though we suspected, we cannot confirm that the unnamed suspect from 2015 and the prisoner from 2017 are the same individual. GBI and Wilcox County FOIA requests were declined. So we're left with the most fundamental question in this case, and it's also the hardest to answer. If Tracy named her killer, why hasn't that led to an arrest? There are a few possibilities. That the three men who were cleared by police weren't thoroughly vetted and one is the perpetrator. That there is another man not located who shares the same name and is responsible. Or that Tracy used her last breaths to offer up the wrong name. But why would she? There's not a clear answer. Tracy was hit at least seven times at full force in the skull with a baseball bat. She'd suffered a fatal injury. What name she said and what name she meant might not have been the same. Or perhaps she didn't know her attacker's name, and a boyfriend or former boyfriend's name is what her mind offered up. Since the mid-2000s, law enforcement has run various tests on the evidence that remains. Most specifically, they concentrated on the bat. If you'll recall, the assailant broke it during the beating. The fact that the handle was found off the highway, some distance away, means it was likely tossed out of a vehicle window. And why dispose of some of the evidence and leave some behind? Perhaps he was thinking of fingerprints. Perhaps he couldn't find all the pieces of the bat. In either case, the haphazard approach is worth examining. It could be the attack was spontaneous, that Tracy's murderer hadn't planned to assault her. But we can't assume that. In the case of Elia Banderas, for instance, the assailant planned to attack a housekeeper. He even tried to lure another woman before he killed Elia. But he didn't bring a weapon. He used the room's telephone and then left it behind. In the 2017 AJC article on the case, Agent Lee Weathersby is quoted as saying, quote, We've tested the evidence multiple times now, using neurotechnology, and do not have a viable suspect. In that article, he indicated that the last round of tests had occurred in 2009 and that witnesses and possible persons of interest had been requestioned. In a separate statement to News 41 in 2015, Weathersby said that he reviews the case on a quarterly basis, and he explained some of the difficulty in tracking down information on Tracy's movements, and this is a direct quote. Quote, No one was really close to him at the time this occurred. There's nobody who was traveling with him that we have been able to locate. The television broadcast includes otherwise unreleased crime scene photos and the second photo we've ever seen of Tracy. In it, her hair is longer, and she wears black eyeliner. The other featured images include a pair of blood-spattered Ked tennis shoes, a bloody branch, and a splintered bat and handle. There's also one bit of evidence that we haven't seen reported elsewhere. Tire tracks at the scene, which were shown briefly in the report. The pictures are low-res and presented at an angle, which makes it difficult to determine who might have left them or what. 
but it definitely was not a big rig. More likely, it was a lightweight car or even an all-terrain vehicle. And then there's the bat, shown at three separate points in the video. It's a black Franklin wooden model with a bulb-shaped knob at its end, Little League style. Our best guess is that it was either a 24-inch model or the larger 30-inch model. Either way, it's a small bat. It's worth noting that truckers who use compact wooden clubs called tire thumpers to check tire pressure sometimes carry these small bats instead. It seems that both the GBI and Wilcox authorities believe that Tracy knew her attacker. And that makes sense based on what she herself reported. But it adds another element to the lack of coverage in this case. The murder has been viewed as a possible domestic dispute or an assault that began in sex work. It has not been labeled a hate crime. The designation of possible partner violence can limit the press a crime receives, even though other elements may suggest a biased attack. For instance, a common denominator in the murder of trans women, by partners or strangers, is overkill. Overkill is a phenomenon often present in bias-based killing, and it involves the infliction of injury far beyond what it would take to end a life. In a 2009 report, the Anti-Violence Project explained overkill as, quote, extreme brutality. Offenders may attack their targets in close contact and with extreme force. Murder victims may be stabbed or shot dozens of times, often in the face or genitals, burned or dismembered. The targeting of specific body parts is often an association of those parts with the hated identity of the victim. The report also points out that overkill can be specifically used as a method of othering the victim and dehumanizing them. This includes acts that occur after consensual sex or sexual assault. Prejudice-fueled abuse can exist within established relationships. Involvement with a trans woman does not preclude transphobia any more than involvement with a cis woman precludes misogyny. And though Tracy was white, it's also worth pointing out that overkill violence is particularly directed at Black and Latinx members of the LGBTQ community. That connection, extreme violence, isn't the only thing that ties Tracy's 1999 death to the 2001 murder of Robert Martin. The attacks were only separated by a county line and 20 months. And although the deaths were similar, it's unlikely that Tracy and Robert were killed by the same person. But it is extremely likely that they were both murdered by people they knew. And in Robert's town of Ashburn, that wasn't a very big pool. Robert was well-known in Ashburn, where the population in 2000 sat at less than 5,000 people. Nearly 30% of those people lived at or below the poverty line, and 65% of the population was black. Then and now, one of the city's major draws is the Fire Ant Festival. It features events like a Miss Fire Ant pageant, a fire ant call, and a strawberry cook-off. Through the late 1960s, there were two high schools in town, and they were segregated, with black students attending Eureka and the white students at what is now Turner County High. Though Eureka has been closed for almost half a century, there are still mentions of it in local press. The Tifton Gazette reports that, until the late 50s, Eureka was a small, white-painted wooden building on a side street, and not until the Supreme Court legislation was enforced were students given a brick building and a unified school district. After the brick version of Eureka closed, it spent time as Turner Middle School. Then it stood empty for decades, 
eventually becoming an abandoned cut-through and an alleged area of criminal activity. Now demolished, it's where Robert was beaten that January of 2001. It's where the family would wait eight hours after he'd been taken to the hospital for police to arrive. They finally called local News Channel 10 to report the attack. His family tells us that it was only after that call that police visited the scene. As in Tracy's case, and as we said, we were unable to find Robert in any yearbooks. But an alumni group did help connect us with Shirley, his cousin, who told us that he had not attended the local high school. However, Robert's mother, Geraldine, did work as a custodian in the Turner County school system. As for Robert, he spent his morning staying home with his younger brother, and he did odd jobs to earn money, mowing lawns, doing chores, raking leaves. Ashburn is in Turner County, which is in turn part of the Tifton Court Circuit. In 1998, AJC reporter and future breakdown host Bill Rankin listed this circuit as imposing the stiffest sentences in all of Georgia. The circuit includes cities like Osceola, a city famous for being the home of Tara Grinstead, who went missing in 2005. Today, Ashburn and Osceola are comparable in size. They have similar demographics and poverty levels. But as of 2016, Ashburn has roughly twice the crime rate. In the 2001 coverage of Robert's case, there was consistent mention of drug-related crime and activity, mostly revolving around the area where the abandoned school was and where Robert was found. Shirley does not remember the school being a hotspot for drug or crime activity, but as she pointed out, she wouldn't necessarily have known. She was very busy, working nights at Hardy's. Neither the police nor Shirley think Robert had anything to do with illegal activities that could have been going on at the school. He had no history of drug abuse or arrests. He was known to use the abandoned school as a cut-through to shave a few blocks off his walks home from the Pink Panther Club. According to Shirley, Robert's social life revolved around three things. Visiting family, spending time with his friends, and dancing at the Pink Panther. Shirley described the club as the only one in town and said that it wasn't focused on a particular demographic. If you wanted to dance in Ashburn, you went there. Robert loved all kinds of music, so long as it was fast. Though Geraldine told the local news that she did not see Robert wear a wig or feminine items of clothing, Shirley said that he often combined more masculine and feminine items to create unique outfits, ones he'd wear out, about the town, or to the club. Reports of the town's reactions to this are mixed. Some friends and relatives were quoted in the original article saying that Robert was accepted. Others say he was picked on by local teenagers and even at time pelted with rocks. Shirley has her own memories of those altercations. And in just, and I wouldn't be just saying just because he's my cousin that he's a nice person. He did not bother nobody. He did not. Now he defended himself. That's what you're supposed to do. So, you know, you know, protect yourself. When somebody's bothering you, that's what you're supposed to do. And he will always come tell me when somebody is bothering him. He will always come tell me. Always. I was staying in the projects. And that was right above from the store, in the little corner store down there. That's the store that they used to throw rocks at him. And he would walk to my house and tell me. And I would go right on down there, praying it all, you know, because that's my cousin. And I love my cousin. 
Shirley has also expressed that she felt Robert's cognitive disabilities were part of why he was occasionally harassed. And that made her feel particularly protective of him all the way into adulthood. Robert's approach to personal style was poorly understood by authorities and media. According to Shirley, none of the reports accurately described Robert. We personally found Robert described several different ways. He was gay. He didn't hide it. That's where he was. He would wear wigs. And I think, uh, and shorts. He would wear shorts. You would never, like, really see him in any dresses or skirts. He would always wear wigs and shorts. That's what he would wear. But, and I, can, I, I would always tell him, I said, if you're going to dress and carry yourself like that, make it look good. That's what I was. I used to tell him because now and I always tell him, don't be ashamed of nothing. If you what you want to be, you be it. Don't never be ashamed. We asked Shirley about all the conflicting reports regarding Robert's clothes that evening. And she pointed out that the family actually received his clothing from the hospital, which means they knew exactly what he was wearing. But it also means that the items weren't taken into evidence at that time. She said there were no feminine undergarments or anything else as described in the news media. Just Robert's usual club wear, short shorts and a shirt. He sometimes wore earrings or a chain-link style belt, but Shirley doesn't remember him wearing them that night. His wig had been torn from his head during the struggle and left at the school. If the police collected it, it was much later. To be clear, it doesn't matter what Robert was wearing or what he liked to wear. But it does matter how he was perceived and reported upon, because homophobia and implied transphobia are apparent in the descriptions and have affected his case. And those same attitudes may have resulted in his death. When the Georgia Equality Project first became involved in the case, they contacted the Ashburn police and the GBI to ascertain that Robert's beating would be investigated as a possible hate crime. After all, Robert wasn't robbed. He was not a known drug user. He didn't owe anyone money. What else, besides his sexuality or his perceived gender identity, might have led to an attack? Shirley thinks it could be a little more complicated. According to what she told us, there were plenty of rumors surrounding the attack on her cousin, both inaccurate descriptions of how he was injured and some hints as to why. Local gossip spread that Robert had been raped with an object, specifically a stick, and that he had been found with the object still inside his body. Shirley told us this isn't true, but also that, to her knowledge, no rape kit was performed after the attack. She thinks it's most likely that one of two scenarios occurred, that Robert was the victim of a sexual assault and was attacked by someone whose advances he rejected, or that Robert was killed by someone with whom he had been in a consensual relationship. If the latter, Shirley figures the attack would have had to do with fear of exposure. Like I said, you can talk to anybody in this town. They'll tell you, Robert didn't bother nobody. Robert was being Robert. And you knew he was, you know, and what he was. So that's why I said it had to be somebody that didn't want to be found out. That was my thing. And I still say that to this day. Because, like I said, we have a lot of that in this town that has come up. And people got caught with other, you know, gay people, you know, other people that portraying to be women's. 
getting caught. Most, you know, they have, so. That's what I'll say, but. But one thing about Robert is, if you're messing with him, he's messing with you. Oh, he's not gonna keep it a secret. He's gonna tell it. So that's might have been enough. That's why we always say it might have been, you know, somebody wouldn't want to be found out. The same kind of behavior has been seen in many homophobic and transphobic attacks, including sexual assaults. The Human Rights Campaign reported that quote. of gay men and 47% of bisexual men have experienced sexual violence other than rape, compared to 21% of heterosexual men, and that, quote, 47% of transgender people are sexually assaulted at some point in their lifetime. Those attacks include intimate partner violence. As we noted, a relationship does not preclude homophobia and transphobia. In Robert's case, the possibility of being involved with a man who is perceived or known as heterosexual could have added another element of danger. Shirley believes there were men in Ashburn who were not willing to be known for moving outside of heterosexual norms and who would commit violence to protect their reputations. And the attack was brutal. Robert was bludgeoned, but he fought hard. Shirley said he knew how to and that he had to know how to. He'd been known to carry a straight razor. That night, the family saw drag marks in the dirt, blood spattered, Robert's belongings scattered as if the fight had moved. They had plenty of opportunity to notice those details because there was no crime tape. Robert was unconscious when the man who'd been walking a dog through the abandoned school saw him. The dog walker, who was later questioned by police and cleared, called 911 and the story began to sift through town, with calls going out to family and friends. Shirley remembers being at work when her uncle called her. Robert was taken to the hospital, and his family followed. It was only on their way home much later that they realized there was no police tape at the abandoned school. The family called again and again, and as we told you, they finally called News Channel 10 to alert them of the attack. After authorities finally arrived, Shirley says the scene still wasn't secured that instead, a search was done using the flashing lights of fire engines as a guide. She watched the local news station interview the former sheriff, who she remembers as being uninterested, or maybe unconcerned, that his officer hadn't put up tape. We've been unable to locate this footage, so we cannot verify her memory. But there are various reports that mention a few issues with the crime scene. Later, when the GBI's agent arrived at the hospital to speak with Robert's family, Shirley remembers him expressing surprise at the way the scene was handled. The GBI's Perry office became involved in this case, which was notable at the time, because its special agent in charge was Tom Davis, who gained national attention during the Olympic Park bombing of 1996. He was the person who was actually with security guard Richard Jewell when the bomb was discovered. In Robert's case, the GBI went on to offer a $1,000 reward, but to our knowledge, there were no significant leads. If Robert's clothes were given back to his mother, Geraldine, then it's unlikely that any evidence was gathered, and Shirley remembers no discussion of any other forensic testing. Some may have been run, but we have not found any record. Unlike Tracy, Robert was never able to name his attacker. He never regained consciousness. He was in the hospital for a little over two months. During that period, the GBI agent, Tom Davis, told the Associated Press that, quote, We haven't received any leads in a couple of weeks. We're in the process of trying to stir things up. 
But there wasn't much to stir up. Most in town had no idea who could have hurt Robert. A local man named Robert Byrd, who Shirley remembers as a friend of the family, told the Augusta Chronicle, quote, He had friends all over Ashburn. I don't know of anybody in Ashburn who'd want to do it. And Shirley heard a few more rumors, mostly about drug dealers who might have been motivated by robbery. But that didn't make sense. Robert carried so little money that no one would want to rob him. The Atlanta Equality Project actually sent a representative down to Ashburn, and according to the Associated Press, quote, to Ashburn specifically to provide support for the victim's family. The group also hired an attorney to act as an intermediary between the Martins and authorities. Shirley says that her Aunt Geraldine's focus was mostly on Robert, who was at this time on life support, and she remembers her aunt being encouraged to pursue a lawsuit by the same Atlanta Equality Project, but that Geraldine ultimately was only interested in finding out who had attacked her son. After all, she had some of her own suspicions. Before, when it first happened, my aunt used to always say, they killed my baby. That's the only thing she always used to say, they killed, she say they. She would always say day because we would say day because we always said it was more than one person because they would have had to really fight Robert if it was just one person because he would have bit him, he would have cut him, and he would have did all he could. Like I said, because you can tell the dirt marks in the ground while he was like struggling or something. So I'm thinking it was more than just one person. When we were researching Robert's case, we found news coverage from January and February of 2001. That's it. Only when we found Geraldine's obituary did we discover that he had actually died that March. Shirley tells us that by then, he'd been placed in a long-term nursing facility, and that it was after Geraldine had lost her job. When she lost her job, then she lost her insurance and any extra funding that she had. The family actually had to raise money in town to bury Robert. Geraldine remained in the family home with her younger son, Reginald. Unlike Robert, he didn't spend time socializing, though Shirley says he would occasionally walk through the neighborhood. In the years after Robert's death, there was yet more to face. The family became aware that Reginald had been assaulted. As we mentioned, Reginald was and is nonverbal. He could not name his attacker. Shirley says that the family tried to pursue the matter, but, as in Robert's case, they were unsuccessful. After Geraldine died, Reginald moved in with Shirley's mother. It was important to all of them that the family stick together. We asked Shirley how the loss of his brother and mother affected Reginald, and she said that sometimes they come upon him in the house and he'll be crying. After all, it had just been the three of them for a long time. Without the help of Shirley, we'd have even less to tell you about Robert's life and his death than we had to offer you on Tracy Thompson. Unlike Tracy, Robert has not generally been included in the memorials dedicated to gay and transgender victims of violence. Not because activists wouldn't honor him, but because they've never heard the story. If not for a chance mention, we wouldn't have either. It's not that Tracy's 1999 news coverage was more sensitive or more informed. There was just more of it. We can't say for certain why such a similar attack and death would have made less media impact. It could be race. 
could be the involvement of law enforcement and their interest in solving the case. Maybe it's both. But there's something to be said for the kind of headlines that surrounded Tracy. Her life was painted as lurid and freakish, and her death as a foregone conclusion. She was in a town of strangers when she died, an outsider in every sense of the word. Robert gets some of that same treatment, but there was family, people to say, we loved him. And that doesn't make for a snappy headline. Like the cases of many, many other members of the LGBTQ community, the murders of Tracy Thompson and Robert Martin remain unsolved. If you have any information pertaining to their deaths or to the identities of their attackers, you can contact the GBI at 1-800-597-TIPS. That's TIPS. We'd like to acknowledge the AJC's Nancy Badersher for her empathetic coverage of Tracy's case. Special thanks also go out to content advisor Jazia Axelrod, author and illustrator of Frankenstein Support Group for Misunderstood Monsters, a webcomic about monsters and feelings. Additional content advisement by Brandy Williams and Winner Wheeler. Research assistance provided by Haley Gray and Kim Fritz. Join us next time as we discuss the case of Julie Doe, an unidentified transgender homicide victim discovered in Miami-Dade County, Florida, and when we speak to the people who are trying to give her back her name.